Recently, at a bar mitzvah, we were talking with the bar mitzvah who had some rituals uh, in his Torah portion, and we were talking about the role of ritual and what is ritual really about. And, and he said, well, it's kind of like not walking under a ladder or turning your baseball cap around the other way when your teammate really needs a hit. And I said, well, ritual's a little different. They can look very similar, but there's a difference between ritual and superstition. And so we started to have a pretty uh, interesting conversation about the difference between uh, superstitious things that we do and ritual. And so when I asked him what were some of the rituals in his life, he talked about shofar and he talked about fasting. Uh, and then uh, in his speech he said, and like when Rabbi Amy talks to us at the High Holidays at Rosh Hashanah about what's really important in the world and we're, we're able to focus on that and stop paying attention to all the other kind of stuff that we always pay attention to. Yes. However, these days, says Rabbi Lance Sussman, preaching from the pulpit is a real challenge right now. With a few exceptions, rabbis have had to trim their sermonic sails even during the high holidays, sidestepping politics, throwing in autobiographical snippets and a joke or two, and ending gracefully, like docking a family boat. But I feel like I owe Ben Leshgold and anyone else who understands a really important part of their holiday to be thinking about what does our tradition have to say about the really challenging issues of our time? And as American Jews, what does our tradition have to teach us about the situation that we find ourselves in right now? Uh, because I am six weeks out from a total left hip replacement, I've had more time than usual this summer to watch CNN and to watch other um, news shows at greater length than I normally have time to do. Uh, and I was able to make it through an entire issue of Foreign Affairs Journal, something that I've never been able to accomplish before. And in putting those things together, I see and talk to people and see it on the news when we turn it on, just how distressing everything feels right now in our country and the discourse is clearly at a place that reflects the anxiety and fear and frustration of many of the American people. In reading uh, an article in Foreign Affairs Journal, there was an article called Against Identity Politics, The New Tribalism and the Crisis of Democracy by Francis Fukuyama. And Fukuyama says, for the most part, 20th century politics was defined by economic issues. On the left, Politics centered on workers, trade unions, social welfare programs, and redistributive policies. The right, by contrast, was primarily interested in reducing the size of government and promoting the private sector. Politics today, however, is defined less by economic or ideological concerns than by questions of identity. Now, in many democracies, the left focuses less on creating broad economic equality and more on promoting the interests of a wide variety of previously marginalized groups, such as ethnic minorities, immigrants and refugees, women and LGBTQ people. The right, meanwhile, has redefined its core mission as the patriotic protection of traditional national identity, which is often explicitly connected to race, ethnicity, or religion. As I said earlier today, I am a card-carrying member of many of those minorities who have been marginalized in the past. 
as a woman, as a gay woman, as a Jew. I'm now a card-carrying member of the AARP. (laughs) So I certainly am not here to say, nor was Fukuyama to say that it is a bad thing that we include voices that have formerly been silenced or marginalized or worse, oppressed. But rather, he says, democratic societies are fracturing into segments based on ever narrower identities, threatening the possibility of deliberation and collective action by our society as a whole. This is a road that leads only to state breakdown and ultimately failure. Unless such liberal democracies can work their way back to more universal understandings of human dignity, they will doom themselves and the world to continuing conflict. And it's not just our country. It's not just our democracy. It's the state of democracy in our world and our role in being leaders of liberal democracies. The numbers of democracies in our world recently has fallen. And many authoritarian countries led by China and Russia have become much more assertive on the world stage. Successful liberal democracies, including Hungary, Poland, Thailand, and Turkey, have slid backward toward authoritarianism. And the Arab revolts of 2010 and 11, while it disrupted dictatorships throughout the Middle East, yielded very little in terms of democratization, and in some cases, exactly the opposite. All one has to do is look at Iraq, Syria, Libya, and Yemen. It's a serious situation that we find ourselves in. And America must once again become a leader by being a successful, united, and flourishing liberal democracy. It can sound pretty pessimistic and like a hugely tall order, and it is. But the good news is, Judaism has a lot to say to these challenges. It always has had to live differently than other societies that it was a part of. Because until the emancipation and even afterwards, Jews gained citizenship in Germany three times and lost it three times. But before the emancipation, there was no such thing as Jews being citizens in any country in this world. We weren't allowed to be part of the guild system or own land or be part of the military, so we were read out of medieval society in Europe. But Jews had to figure out how to live. The government said to Jews, you figure it out. And Jews have always had massively huge opinions. And they have always had massively conflicting opinions. It has always been the case that where there are two Jews, there are three opinions. (laughs) But still they had to govern themselves. So when we talk about disagreeing, Jews certainly understood what it was to disagree, but they still had to pass laws. They still had to agree on some way to move forward and what policies they would put into place in order to move things forward. In talking with Rabbi Hyman about this sermon topic and where I was going with it, he said, well, you'll recall the work of Rabbi Simon Greenberg, that article that he wrote. It's called something like Judaism and the Democratic Ideal. And I was like, yeah, sure. I know that article. (laughs) Figuring I've been out of it for a while. The last six months I've been caught up with my own health issues and whatever and recovery. So I somehow missed it. So I said, tell me when it was published again. And he said, around 1967. (laughs) 
So he remembered an article that he then pointed me to from 1967, a book called Foundations of Faith by Dr. Rabbi Simon Greenberg. Judaism and the Democratic Ideal was this article in which he says, the basic characteristic of the biblical rabbinic concept of humanity is its indivisibility. The concept cannot tolerate any limiting modifiers. There are no such concepts as black people, white people, Jewish people, or pagan people. There are people who are black and people who are white. There are people who are Jews and people who are not. All are people. And in talking about the story of Genesis and talking about the story of creation, Greenberg points to the Talmud. And there's a lot of ways that story could have gone. There's a lot of different kinds of ways that this universe could have come into existence in our sacred mythology and certainly humanity, how it could have arrived on the scene. How does it happen for us? In one version of Genesis anyway, Adam, earthling, is the first human. Why? Why tell the story that way? Why have that be our teaching about how human beings come to be a part of this miraculous world that we live in. And the Talmud says, Umipne shalom habriot. Shalom yomar adam lachavero avi gado me'avicha. The reason we all descend from Adam, from earthling, one earthling, is so that no human being can turn to another and say, my ancestor is greater than your ancestor. Because the minute somebody plays the ancestor card, you can go back to Adam. And our teaching is all of humanity descends from the same ancestry. Nobody starts off better than anybody else in terms of their own inherent dignity, holiness, and worthiness. For Greenberg, he says, the differences that exist are not inherent, but are peripheral and accidental. And there will be no lasting and significant world peace based upon justice until people feel a sense of biological and psychological identity with all other people. A sense of blood kinship which leaves no room for any thought of inherent biological superiority of one group over another. But he doesn't deny that we also understand as a tradition the uniqueness of every human being. And again points to the Talmud in Sanhedrin 37a. That when a human being stamps a coin and uses that stamp again, they all come out looking exactly the same. But not the Kadosh Baruch Hu. When the Holy One, blessed be God, Tava kol adam b'chot moshal adam arishon, but when the Holy One, blessed be God, took the, the stamp that is Adam and made every human being to be like and from Adam, no two human beings are the same. Every single one is unique. So these are two core values of Judaism that we have taught and attempted to figure out how to live into since our beginnings, that we are all part of the same human family. Literally, we descend. And we know this now, according to science. We descend from the same creatures. And we are all different. 
We are unique with our own perspectives, our own ways of seeing things, our preferences. Unity within diversity. That is something that has preserved the Jewish people for our entire history. These values are critical to a successful democracy. And we need, as the Jewish people, as the Jewish Americans and our allies, to reclaim them. As I said, Jews had to figure out how to live together and they had to make policies. They had to make law. They lived under Jewish law, not under state law. So how do you have a bunch of differences of opinion and still have halacha, still have law that's going to guide you? Everyone had to understand the rules and engage and play by the rules. Well, what they did is that they had serious debates, respectful, serious debates. And always the halacha, the law, went according to the majority. And that was written down explicitly, what the argument was and what the decision was and why that thinking took the day. And on that same page was written the minority opinion and how the folks who believed in the minority position came to that conclusion. Always this is what the practice was. Why? Because A, it says that the side that lost wasn't wrong. It's not zero-sum game politics. It says, I don't have to lose because you have something go your way. Just because the majority votes for that today doesn't mean the minority is wrong. It means they see it differently. That is a huge contribution that Judaism has made to our functioning in the past, but I believe it's critical that we reclaim that as Jews today, that we can disagree vehemently even with someone else's political stance, their policy choices, and what they support. It doesn't mean someone else is wrong for us to say we believe in doing it a different way. Elu ve'elu, divrei Elohim chayim. In the Torah, it says, and the rabbis translate it to mean, Elu ve'elu, these and these contradicting words, divrei Elohim chayim, are words of the living God, all of them. They truly valued the other opinion, even if it wasn't the one they were going to support. Rabbi Elazar Bar Shimon Omer, Rabbi Eliezer ben Shimon says, the whole world is judged by the majority of its actions. And so is the individual. And so what does that mean? It means that one mitzvah can tilt a person or the whole world to the side of merit. Greenberg says, willingly or unwillingly, by what we fail to do or what we do, we make our contribution to the sum total of good or evil in the world. Hence, willingly or unwillingly, we bear direct responsibility, not only for our own individual fate, but also for the fate of the universe. The high point of the religious calendar in Judaism, these days of awe, is devoted to nurturing in its adherence this concept of the human being as inescapably responsible. One cannot avoid the consequences of one's acts, 
either for oneself or for humanity. Democracy needs as an indispensable ally this sense of responsibility which Judaism seeks to inculcate. A responsibility which should be ours not merely as employees in a business establishment nor as servants of the state but as citizens of the world upon whose thoughts and acts the fate of the universe depends. These high holy days are here to charge us with our responsibility. We don't know which act is going to result in tipping the scale. And it's hard to think as an individual that it's going to tip much. But all of us as individuals, one act by each of us tips the balance, teaches our tradition. Mordechai Kaplan, the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism, says the idea underlying democracy is that the interests uniting human beings, if they become truly aware of those interests, are strong enough to ward off the divisive influence of people's differences. The crucial problem of freedom is how to guard our individuality and the capacity to think for ourselves and yet cooperate with those whose backgrounds, upbringings, and outlooks are different from our own. This is an art, said Kaplan, that all human beings, you should feel in good company, Senator Allen, that all human beings are very slow to learn. Democracy should be conceived as a process of social experimentation by which people are seeking to learn that art and to apply step by step the wisdom acquired as a result of such experimentation. And that is why the art of free, voluntary cooperation the ultimate objective of democracy must be constantly cultivated. We are one such place that that happens. We are one such place where we are really working to do that, to allow difference of opinion to exist alongside respect. We can come down on a really hot button issue like Israel on two completely different sides in this community. But what all of these people are talking about is can we find the common ground of a love for Israel and wanting to support that flourishing Jewish democracy? We're going to disagree about how to do that. But unity within difference, we have to find the things that unify us. That is what a democracy depends on. Fukuyama says democracies need to promote what political scientists call creedal national identities which are not built around shared personal characteristics, lived experiences, historical ties, or religious convictions, but rather around core values and beliefs. The idea is to encourage citizens to identify with their country's foundational ideals and use public policies to deliberately assimilate newcomers. Kaplan really believed this. Kaplan believed exactly this, that we needed a creed as a nation. And I know we are very proud in Judaism of saying we're a religion of deed, not creed. I get it. But we need a creedal identity, says Fukuyama. And Kaplan 100% believed that. Early, it was 1951 when he published, look, look, you can't even read the spine anymore. I've used it so much. He wrote a book called The Faith, of, he didn't write it. He's the editor of a book called The Faith of America, readings, songs, and prayers for the celebration of American holidays. Kaplan hoped this would be on the bookshelf of every American as their American sidor. 
He felt that this was the machzor of the American people. There's prayers for Arbor Day, President's Day, New Year's Day. Every American holiday has a section in this book. Because Kaplan believed we do, with all of our differences, share some fundamental values, some beliefs about this country and the great writers of this country and many, many patriots who have loved this country through their poetry. Um, he believed that if we can get back to that and articulate that, that will carry us through the incredibly divisive politics of any given time, including our own. We as American Jews can help lead by example, but it means we're going to have to be courageous and strong, and we're going to have to really dig deeply and be brave enough to articulate out loud what those values are that we believe this democracy stands for, that all of us can get behind as Americans. That is the only shot we have at repairing the incredible damage that's been done to the public conversation, the civic conversation in this country. And we must serve as an example if we hope other liberal democracies to flourish in this world. I'll close with the words of Clarissa Pinkola Estes, author of Women Who Run With Wolves. This is an excerpt from something she has published recently. My friends, do not lose heart. We were made for these times. I have heard from so many recently who are deeply and properly bewildered. They are concerned about the state of our fair, of affairs in our world now. Ours is a time of almost daily astonishment and often righteous rage. Yet I urge you, ask you, gentle you, to please not spend your spirit dry by bewailing these difficult times. Especially, do not lose hope. Most particularly because the fact is that we were made for these times. We are needed. That is all we can know. Ours is not the task of fixing the entire world all at once, but of stretching out to mend the part of the world that is within our reach. Any small, calm thing that one soul can do to help another soul, to assist some portion of this poor, suffering world, will help immensely. It is not given to us to know which acts or by whom will cause the critical mass to tip toward an enduring good. There will always be times when you feel discouraged. I, too, have felt despair many times in my life, but I do not keep a chair for it. I will not entertain it. It is not allowed to eat from my plate. The reason is this. In my uttermost bones, I know something, as do you. It is that there can be no despair when you remember why you are here, who you serve, and who sent you here. The good words we say and the good deeds we do are not ours. They are the words and deeds of the one who brought us here. This Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, may we honor the one who brought us here by listening to the call, listening across hundreds of years, and in our case as Jews, thousands of years, 
to the timeless values, morals, ethics, and beliefs that can unite us and are strong enough to hold even the hugely difficult differences we experience as human communities. Shana Tova.